Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University, which grounds students in the 500-year-old Jesuit tradition of academic rigor and personal reflection, while providing them with the critical skills needed to succeed in work and life. Students work with passionate faculty and have the chance to study abroad, participate in civic engagement, and conduct hands-on research across a variety of disciplines. And by the Department of English at Fairfield University, which is home to the digital journalism major, as well as an English major with concentrations in literature, creative writing, English studies, professional writing, and teacher education. For more information on the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English, go to fairfield.edu. Did you know that you can find just about all of the Gangry the Podcast episodes, we've done 55 of them now, on our website? Just go to gangrythepodcast.com and you'll find interviews with amazing writers and reporters like David Graham, Jeannie Marie Laskus, Tom Juneau, Chris Jones, Janet Reitman, Wright Thompson, Catherine Miles, Chuck Klosterman, Mac McClellan, Thomas Lake, and so many more. They are all there, along with links to many of the amazing stories and books written by our guests. Just go to gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. Before we get started today, I want to do a little bit of shameless self-promotion. My book, Running with Ghosts came out at the end of August. Former podcast guest Stephen Kuritz interviewed me on episode 54 about the book. At any rate, Running with Ghosts has gotten some lovely reviews. New York Times bestselling author and episode 38 guest Kim Cross said Running with Ghosts is an unflinching memoir of sickness and salvation. Cleveland Magazine said the book has an air of documentary reality and emotional self-reflection. And two-time guest and my former editor, Glenn Stout, gave Running With Ghosts a glowing review on Don Venata's Sunday Long Read newsletter. So far, all of the reviews on Amazon and Goodreads have given Running With Ghosts five stars. Check it out. Running With Ghosts, a memoir of surviving childhood cancer, was published by the Sager Group and is available on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. On this episode of Gangry the Podcast, I talk with Michael Cruz. Cruz has been a guest on the podcast twice before. He was featured on episode 16 when we talked about his three-part series, The Last Voyage of the Bounty, which ran in the Tampa Bay Times. And he was on episode 45, which also included Ben Montgomery, Thomas Lake, Wright Thompson, and Tony Rahagan, as they reminisced about the late Michael Brick. This time around, Cruz and I talk about his work at Politico, where he is a senior staff writer. We talked about the differences between reporting for the Tampa Bay Times and Politico, as well as what it's like to be a national politics reporter in the age of Donald Trump. One of Cruz's most recent pieces focused on the city of Johnstown, Pennsylvania, a city and region that voted heavily for Trump. And while these residents, like most Trump supporters, rail against the media, Cruz said they are always willing to talk when he shows up. When I show up somewhere, whether that is in rural Florida 
as the as the you know courts reporter for the Hernando County Bureau of the St. Pete Times, or that that's as uh, a reporter for Politico from Washington. When I show up, I am a person. I am mm-hmm. a human being. I am the other half of a conversation. I am not the faceless media boogeyman. I'm not somebody yelling at them through the television screen. Cruz has won the Paul Hansel Award for Distinguished Achievement in Florida Journalism and the American Society of News Editors Distinguished Non-Deadline Writing Award. As usual, we've linked to several of Cruz's stories on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Welcome back to the podcast, Michael. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's good to be uh, good to be back with you. I, I think uh, you are officially the first person to show up on the podcast three times uh, now. You were originally a guest on episode 16 uh, when we talked about your piece, Voyage of the Bounty. Uh, and that was all the way back in January 2014. Uh, you were also on the episode that we had featuring uh, or remembering Michael Brick, uh, which was episode right. 45. Um, but a lot has changed for you uh, since you were on that first episode back in 2014. Um both personally and professionally. Can you talk a little bit about what's been going on with you in those four years? That's true. That's right. So at that time, of course, I was at the Tampa Bay Times uh, writing uh, for the Enterprise team any wide variety of topics and subject matters. Um, And then what going on three years ago, I chose to leave and go to Politico to profile presidential candidates, which I did. Uh, That has obviously morphed into one of those presidential candidates becoming the president. So I still write a fair amount about him leveraging all of that reporting from over the past uh, couple of years, at least. Um, And so my, my professional life is uh, quite different in uh, a whole host of ways, which we can talk about if you want. Right, right. Uh, than it than it was, um, you know, in my nearly decade uh, in St. Pete, um, I moved to Washington to work for Politico. I was there for a year and a half, and then Politico was good enough, uh, and I feel very fortunate uh, to let me. Uh, move out of Washington. And so now I live in North Carolina and go to Washington, depending on what I'm working on once or twice a month, I'd say, uh, work out of my home and work out of, you know, airports and hotels, uh, (laughs) because lots of my work takes me away from Washington, took me away from Washington, even when I lived there. And Mm -hmm. so um, my, my, (laughs) my life is, 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 uh, interesting if nothing else and uh keeps me very very busy so uh you're now a senior writer at politico uh you've been there about three years Uh, what what made you and you had been in saint pete for uh more than a decade what why why did you decide to make the jump well um a number of reasons first of all i thought it would be an interesting um challenge and it has been an interesting challenge both of those things uh, I also just practically, and to be candid, um, I uh, thought that, and I saw around me the 
newspaper industry in general becoming a little bit less certain Mm -hmm. uh, and that included finally the Tampa Bay Times you know for so long the St. Pete Times was sort of immune to trend lines and industry forces or certainly didn't um, suffer from them quite as much because of uh, the relationship with Pointer and the fact that it didn't report to Wall Street, and that's what made it such a great, great place to be, <clears throat> and why I wanted to be there in the first place. But I didn't, I didn't see not immediately, but I didn't, I couldn't quite see with clarity uh, what my world would look like at that newspaper or in newspapers, regional newspapers, really in general five, 10 years, 20 years down the road. And so if I was going to leave, I wanted to leave from a position of strength rather than mm-hmm. um, being forced to make some sort of more panicky decision. And so at that time, almost three years ago, I uh, was looking into some options and Politico ended up being one of them and seemed like the most attractive um, opportunity and certainly very new um, to me. I had written some profiles of politicians in St. Pete and around Florida, but that's definitely was not my specialty. Uh, But Politico said, (laughs) we like that. We want your fresh eyes Mm -hmm. and um, come on up and, I, I went up there and, and kind of started from almost zero in terms of <laughs> political uh, political contacts and even um, political knowledge, but have spent the last almost three years frantically trying to catch up and keep up. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you you made the jump with Bill Durier, and I probably pronounced his name incorrectly. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's right. No, that, and that was another. Another thing, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, if you make a move like that or any move, in some respects, the most important transition, at least professionally, is who are you going to be working with? Who's going to be your editor? And that is one transition I did not have to make because Bill Durier, my editor at the Times for... I'd say six or seven years, my last six or seven years there worked exclusively with him, uh, went with me to mm-hmm. Politico right. and Politico got to both of us, approached both of us, started talking to us separately. And then there was this um, kind of funny moment where I said to Bill, just in the interest of, you know, honesty and disclosure that I was talking to Politico and he kind of looked at me strangely and said let's go for a walk and uh we went for a walk and he said i also am talking to politico and so uh from there it 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 became a situation where he i think he flew up there and interviewed one day uh flew back we met for coffee uh in saint pete and i flew up and talked to them and flew back and then uh we were both doing our own things and obviously making the right decisions for for us uh individually and for our families but um Certainly, it was a huge help, especially there early on in the first six months to a year, uh, a huge help to transition into 
Washington and transition to Politico with him and together. It was a transition for him and it was a transition for me. But uh, we were able to, um, you know, band together and try to try to make that work. And hopefully we have. Right, right. So so when you made the jump, um, what uh, what were some of the goals that you had set for yourself? Uh, like, what did you think you would be doing at one point in time or, you know, at some point in time? And uh, is that I mean, it's a hard question. I, I don't even know if it's a possible question to answer, but is that what you're doing now? Um, given the fact that the entire world changed uh, in 2016. But I mean, how is what you're doing now compared to compared to what you thought you might end up doing? Well, you know, in the broadest sense, it's the, it's the same job that I've always done, even mm-hmm. before I went to St. Pete, um, back at the Times-Herald Record in New York State and Basketball America, um, you know, eyes and ears and pen and pad and work, work, work and be a curious person. So I was expecting to <laughs> to be a reporter, just, just uh, be a reporter in a quite different playing field obviously as you referenced nobody nobody even the you know most well-seasoned washington journalists could have predicted or did predict how my first couple years at politico (laughs) all my years at politico at this point um would go you know i remember early on maybe four or five months, not even, into my time at Politico, I pitched a profile of Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bernie Sanders in the 60s and 70s in Vermont because it was a underexplored um, chapter of his life, of this, um, of this person who was already at that point... Um, starting to become a thorn in Hillary Clinton's side. And so I pitched this, and I remember hearing back from um, the experienced editors at Politico through no fault of their own. This was the appropriate response, but the response was, we should do this fairly quickly because he's going to be not running for very long. Mm -hmm, And so I scurried up to Vermont in like, April or May of 2015 um, and did that story in a few weeks and then it ran. And then of course, Bernie Sanders kept running and kept running and kept running. And so that was uh, an early uh, suggestion that, you know, we all, whether you just moved from Florida to Politico or whether you um, have 30 or 40 years under your belt in Washington and in politics, we all didn't really have any inkling of what was to come. And with respect to Donald Trump, I didn't really start zeroing in on him until I'd say the end of 2015 and early 16 had written a couple things, Mm -hmm. but he was just another candidate and and a candidate. I and some others of course were sort of writing about a little bit less. I mean, I, I did a lot of stuff on, um, on Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio and a ton of stuff on Jeb Bush and, but by the time uh, I shifted my focus to uh, Trump in, say, January of 2016, there was lots and lots of Trump from there and has been ever since. Right, right. Um, I, 
I feel like you've probably read everything that's ever been written about Donald Trump. Is that is that accurate? Do you think? I don't know that that's physically possible um, <laughs> because so much has been written about him for so so well, I, long. I guess maybe historically speaking. Historically Does speaking, well, well that, that's what I'm talking about. I mean, he's been a public figure right, for right. You know, the better part of a half a century. And so that's what I mean, that as much as I've tried um, and have been forced to uh, and have had, have had to, I have not read 100% of mm-hmm. the words generated about Trump. But I would say I'm on a short list of right. people who've, who've read a, a huge percentage of not only what has been written about him or said about him, but what he himself right has written, or at least uh, what somebody, you know, hired by him has written with his name on the cover. But, uh, you know, Trump is, there's so much material. Mm -hmm. He is, with the possible exception of Hillary Clinton, uh, he is uh, the most talked about, written about, watched, or one of them, uh, people in this country for more than a generation. so <laughs> it has been I, I have it's fair to say that I went to Politico with zero percent expectation that a large portion of my professional life would become having to become an expert on Donald Trump. What um is there a difference between doing like a deep dive into the history of uh, Bernie Sanders uh, versus doing a deep dive into the history of uh, something, some aspect of Donald Trump's life? Um, you know, not really in terms of mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, you are doing your reading and your research and you're going where you need to go to do that reading and research and to meet with people who knew uh, that person at certain times in their, in their past. I mean, one of my one of my um, approaches, and this was true even in Florida, but certainly it's been true in Washington, has been to identify chapters of politicians' lives and zero in on them, report those chapters, those little slivers to the dirt, and then say something larger about that person through that window. And it is one way I have at least tried to do distinctive political profiles. You know, one of the biggest differences between working in Florida and working in Washington for me is just competition. Uh, Right, right. You know, Washington is ultra, ultra competitive, Um, you know, I'd say New York and Washington, there's there's not a thing, pretty much, I mean, there are some exceptions, but there's not a, a story you're working on where there isn't somebody else working on some version of it, or potentially there might be somebody else working on some version of it. And so you're looking for ways to do something that feels different and is different and kind of historically minded profiles that has been one way I've tried to do it, mm-hmm. using history to illuminate um, uh, a person in the current moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to, <laughs> I'd say, February or March of my first year at 
Politico, I went to Mexico to do some Jeb Bush reporting. Mm-hmm. He had met his wife down there uh, on an exchange program in high school. And so I went to this area to do some reporting on that in Mexico and had a, a fixer who was a translator, and he helped me find a relative of his wife in this little village. And I sat in this woman's home and was asking her questions through the interpreter because I unfortunately, regrettably do not speak Spanish. And this woman said to me, huh, so just the other day, somebody else from Washington was here. (laughs) And I said to her through the interpreter, what, who, who was here in your house in this out of the way town in central Mexico and out came a business card from a reporter from the Washington post. And you know, this was probably what 50, 60 days into my time at Politico. And I mm-hmm. thought to myself, holy shit, you know, this is, this is, uh, this is a different kind of competitive environment right. that I typically encountered doing my kinds of stories, uh, for the St. Pete Times. Do you like that competition? Uh, sometimes, um, you know, it has forced me to report differently to, to, kind of try to leave fewer tracks, whether that's just some, as simple as not announcing where you are by tweeting, <laughs> right. or whether that is not leaving email trails that could be forwarded somewhere mm-hmm. and making phone calls instead. Um, I definitely, in particular, after that kind of slap me in the face moment in dusty central Mexico, I have been much more aware of the competition. I don't know if it's, you know, a good thing or a bad thing for me. I just, it's a thing that I have to deal with and kind of in the most, in the, in the most, um, um, materially difficult way for me, on occasion, I will hear that somebody else is working on a very similar story to the one I'm working on, kind of reporting concurrently, and that makes me have to speed it up mm-hmm. or slow it down considerably and just sort of back off. That, that, that might happen as well. But typically when I hear from people I'm talking to that somebody else is poking around, um, I, I speed up the process and try to um, beat those other people to publication. And mm-hmm. so, you know, uh, something I was forced to confront fairly early in my time at Politico was the reality that sometimes it's better to be, you know, uh, pretty good and first rather than as amazingly good and second mm-hmm. because people have, particularly if you're going up against a direct competitor, because people, once they've read a story, they've read the story. And if another story shows up a week later and it's better, it won't be read as much (laughs) sometimes. I mean, that is like, that's a calculation. I guess every case is different, but that's, that is a a competitive calculation that um, I've, I've been forced to make along with Bill and along with um, uh, other editors at Politico. Um, And it's a calculation that, I would say almost never came up in St. Pete right. in St. Pete. It was, how do we make this story the best it can possibly be? There was no competition right. almost always, I mean, right. almost ever that there was no, there was, there was no competition. The competition was with, was with yourself, mm-hmm. um, how good you could make this piece, this story. 
Yeah, that's fun. Uh, I actually just listened to um, Don Venata's podcast yesterday for the first time. He had Chris Jones, and he talked. They talked about um, the Zanesville story when uh, Chris Jones and Chris Heath of uh, Esquire and GQ were both in Zanesville at the exact same time. Uh, and I that, that's just something that doesn't come up in newspapers anymore because there are no, virtually no two newspaper towns anymore. Well, it it, it, it comes up I think sometimes in New York. Yeah, and it right, comes yeah. up on occasion um, in Washington, even between newspapers. But more in Washington, it's between you know the Post and Politico, or right. the Post and CNN, or really everybody and everybody. I right. mean, everybody is vying for the you know uh, vying for uh, new scraps, uh, valuable scraps of information. Um, you know, it's just a it's just a hyper competitive place that that draws hyper competitive people. And if you're not if you're not to some extent hyper competitive it's just not it's just not worth it and it's not something you're going to do right right so so let's talk about uh, i want to talk about uh your story that you wrote um recently uh that was focused on johnstown pennsylvania um and that was a city that you had visited immediately after the election in 2016 uh and, and you wrote a story about and it was a it was a, a region an area that voted very heavily for donald trump uh, and your story at that point in time talked about what do they want to see, uh, what do they expect, uh, and then you you went back. Um, so can you talk why why did you go back and uh, talk about that story a little bit? Yeah. So the idea always uh, in going to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and Cambria County, in that area of the western part of that state, and other areas uh, in the Midwest and in the Rust Belt, in the immediate aftermath of the election, the idea was to set up the opportunity to go back at certain times throughout the presidency of Donald Trump to lay down a marker in November of 2016 that you could then return to and do some comparison and some contrast. And I went initially to Johnstown and to Cambria County because actually in that particular instance, I went because a different reporter for Politico magazine had gone in the summer of 2016 and had written this story that, looking back, in retrospect, should have been kind of a warning mm. sign for the Clinton campaign. It detailed the ways in which traditional Democratic voters, and even actually still registered Democrats, were abandoning her and her candidacy and were energized by what Trump was saying. And then, in fact, on Election Day... In Cambria County, Trump won by a very wide margin. Mm-hmm. And of course, those kinds of places, specifically in Pennsylvania, as well as obviously Michigan and Wisconsin, helped make Donald Trump president. So that area of Western Pennsylvania is one of those areas, along with others, of course. I mean, like, you know, Donald Trump became president by winning lots of places. Right. But these, these few places are among... Uh, uh, places on a list that in this direct stark way helped make him president. So Mm -hmm. we wanted to go to those places and this was one of them. So I went there last year in November of 2016, the week right after the election, talked to a host of people who had supported Trump on election day, asked them why, uh, asked them what they were expecting in return for their vote Mm -hmm. and wrote a story then and logged that and then returned uh, almost exactly a year later, a little bit 
a little bit earlier in November because we wanted the piece to run, in fact, on November 8th on the anniversary. And so I went the week before November 8th and revisited with um, most of the people Mm -hmm. I had spoken to the first time. And what I found, if you read, if you have read the story, (laughs) many people, many people read the story, it seemed. Um, What I found was a lot of the things that they said were the most important things in November 2016 were less important uh, or not important at all. You know, re- re- repealing and replacing Obamacare, building the wall, uh, fixing the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. And for them, locally, reopening uh, the steel mills that had been closing for, you know, 50 years right. uh, plus and uh, um, increasing coal jobs. It's a, it's a classic coal and steel mm-hmm. kind of area, blue-collar area. And these, these things um, were not as important to them. They still support the president as much as, if not more than, they used to. But the culture wars, to use a broad, overused phrase, seem to be um, animating them more than what we would consider to be particular policy victories or defeats. Right. When you first went there, um, given um, Trump's rhetoric about reporters and the media, uh, although I think it has ramped up more since he's become president, but even like right after he was elected, was it hard to get people to talk to you as a reporter from Washington, D.C.? No. Here's the thing about that. So many times in Cambria County and in so many places around the country, I find myself in somebody's living room and this person, these people start bashing the media Mm -hmm. and don't quite consider me part of, quote, the media because I am a person. This has always been my experience. Mm -hmm. Even back well before the current moment we're in and the current political media hating, media distrusting moment we're in, my experience has never not been that when I show up somewhere, whether that is in rural Florida as the as the you know courts reporter for the Hernando County Bureau of the St. Pete Times or that that's as uh, a reporter for Politico from Washington, when I show up, I am a person. I am Mm -hmm. a human being. I am the other half of a conversation. I am not the faceless media boogeyman. I'm not somebody yelling at them through the television screen. Right, that's what I was going to... That's what I was going to say. For them, the media is, you know, the talking heads on whatever news cable channel you want to say who are basically talking and not listening, whereas you're the person who's there listening and not talking. Right? I mean, every time I said, hey, right, every time, and maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's, it's as simple as that. When I'm sitting there and I'm listening, I'm not doing anywhere close to most of the talking. Mm-hmm with many of the people in Western Pennsylvania, 
both times I've been there for these two stories. I set up a meeting. I show up in their living room or at the appointed restaurant for lunch or whatever. And I ask a couple questions and I steer the conversation. But basically, I listen to them for an hour, more than an hour, however long they have. Mm-hmm. And they want, they, want to, they want to unload on me. They want to download. And it's rarely not the case. Um, even as they even as they talk about their unwillingness or inability to trust or to like quote the media mm-hmm. i mean i think it, it speaks to it speaks to um the value i think of of presenting yourself as a listener in the, the largest possible variety of places and across uh, from the largest possible variety of people. There are some uh, instances in the, in the Johnstown story where you do do some talking. Um, and, you know, I don't have the story in front of me, so I can't remember exactly how it shows up. But uh, there's that one section where um, I think you're, cor- you're correcting one of the people that you're interviewing um, with regards to, I think, the golf, the golf issue. Um, what, um, can you talk about how, how do you handle those situations? Um, how, and I think we see how, how the person you're talking to responds. Uh, mm-hmm. but then when you, when it comes to writing the story, how do you, um, what's the thought process that goes through your mind in terms of like trying, how do you decide how you're going to show that to the reader? Well, I, when I have conversations like this um, in places like Johnstown, I am not there to get into a political argument. Obviously Mm -hmm. I'm not there to be confrontational in any way that is counterproductive to my charge as a reporter. Right. At the same time, I am not going to quote somebody saying something that is not true. And in some cases, in many cases, I just don't use that in a story. I just, I just, it's in my notebook or on an audio file and it's just not something I'm going to use. But I think if it shows something that is important for the, the story and important overall for how to understand where we are, um, as a body politic and as a country, I will, step in and again, steer the conversation in a kind of light, non-confrontational fact-checking kind of way. And that often in my experience over the last year creates some revealing exchanges Mm -hmm. and never in any of these sorts of places that help make Trump president. Have I, gotten into what I would call like unpleasant exchanges. Um, but I'm trying to establish some like, fact-based terrain on which to have a valuable, revealing conversation that may or may not end up in the final version of the story. Mm-hmm. And so I think, 
I think what happened in Johnstown and the way I presented it in the story was maybe more explicit than I even sometimes do. And, and, and perhaps that is one reason it generated the amount of tension it did because those, those, um, back and forths with a few people, um, seem to show something that either hadn't been shown before in a story like that in kind of a quote Trump country story Mm -hmm. or hadn't been shown quite so, quite so, um, succinctly or starkly. Right. Right. Um, can you talk about the ending of that story, which is, is pretty much what has gotten, um, a lot of the attention, um, at least on social media, on, on Twitter and on Facebook and, and wherever else I've seen it shared. Uh, a lot of people are, a lot of the people who I've seen share it are, uh, have been very, uh, adamant that people read all the way to the end. Um, uh, I've not seen it quoted anywhere, uh, for, for reasons that you might want to talk about, but, but that, that's been, a, I think a very resonant, um, uh, thing from that story. Can you, can you talk about, Oh, how did you, when did you know that was going to be the ending? Did you know that would be the ending as it happened? Um, did that come up in, uh, you know, uh, talks with editors at Politico? Um, how did that ending come about? Okay. So the, so the exchange that is there at the ending that you're right, I think is another reason this story generated such attention, um, fueled on Twitter and fueled on Facebook comes from a portion of my conversation with this husband and wife and the wife uh, brings it up. I did, it was not in response to a question. Mm-hmm. First of all, I did not ask a question about the NFL. Right. She brought it up. Completely. I want to tell you about this. What's really making me angry is this, is this NFL shit, the kneeling, the kneeling players. That's how she put it. Mm-hmm. And she says to her husband, tell him, meaning me, the reporter, sitting in their living room on their easy chair, tell him what you say the NFL stands for. And her husband kind of gives her a look like, are we sure we want to go here? <laughs> and said, oh, I didn't really say that. I also don't have the story in front of me right now, but you can, you can go and read it. Right. Uh, but he says, he says I, I, didn't, I didn't say that. And she says, no, you did too, you liar. She calls him a liar. And then says, he says the NFL stands for niggers for life. And he says for life, just sort of punctuating this mm-hmm. crude, racially ignorant, insensitive uh, acronym. Right. And I didn't think to myself right then and there that this would be the ending of the piece, partly because sometimes at Politico, there is a, um, a, a, a desire uh, to use some of the most grabby stuff higher right, right. Uh, because, because there is an understanding, which is the reality that fewer people read to the end than mm-hmm. start reading a story. Just the, the sort of the, the metrics and the, the way that the Politico uh, measures these things and analyzes these things is far more sophisticated than I was used to in Florida. And so there is a compelling reason to not hold back something you think is going to uh, resonate widely. But 
this was done very, very quickly. I wrote that story very quickly. And I said to Bill, I told him that not too long after I heard it, Mm -hmm. uh, when I was still in Johnstown, I said, you know, um, this is, this is what I heard at this house. And, and I said to him, as we discussed very quickly, the structure, I want to, I want to hold that to the end. If that, if that flies and nobody had a problem with that. And as it turned out, I think it was a tool to, as a good ending should be, it was a tool to make people read all the way to the end of a, what was it? 3,500 word piece. I think it was, um, you know, the, um, thing that was surprising to me was that there was language very much like that in the first story out of Johnstown and it generated next to no Mm -hmm. buzz. So it was not definitively not the first time I had heard that, um, in that area of Western Pennsylvania. And it was not the first time it had just come up, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask on either occasion um, questions that led to these exchanges that um, then included, um, you know, racist language. But I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it because it speaks it speaks to it speaks to this this question that is overly binary in my mind. What was it that made some of the Trump supporters support Trump? Was it economic anxiety or was it white supremacy? I mean, this is kind of the way it has been framed in the cultural conversation. And I think it's both or it's different for different people, obviously, or it is sort of lurking and latent or sometimes not so latent. And they are related. If you are more economically anxious, which people certainly are, or most people certainly are in Western Pennsylvania, because you can't go to the steel mill and work for 30 years and retire comfortably anymore. It doesn't work like that anymore. Well, then maybe you are that much more prone to be looking for somebody to blame, which, which draws out of you, um, you know, deep seated, uh, bigoted feelings. You know, this is a complicated thing, but I don't want to um, sanitize it. And if that comes up, especially if it comes up in a way that doesn't strike me as out of character or context, I'm obviously going to use it. Mm-hmm. And so I used it. And this this time around, uh, it really uh, it really caught fire and um, was read um, widely. I, I can't quote you numbers, but it. I, I, from what I understand, it was one of the more, one of the more red pieces that I've done in three years at Politico for right. whatever set of reasons. Right. Um, changing gears real quickly. Uh, you had, you had another story that came out pretty closely on the heels of the Johnstown one. And, and that was, um, a piece on Cory Booker. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's two incredibly different ways of going about interviewing people. Right. I mean, in terms of, uh, how, you know, um, going from, um, uh, I don't want to say, you know, regular people to then the, the people in DC, uh, Cory Booker and, and, you know, a politician, um, do you, do you approach those types of interviews or even like the story ideas differently? Well, the approach is certainly different. Um, you know, there are more layers, uh, of, 
of PR to work your way through to get access to a senator than there are to get access to uh, retirees in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. At the same time, I try to have interesting, revealing conversations with both people in Johnstown and also Senator Cory Booker mm-hmm. or any senator or any member of Congress or any politician. Um, you know, the Cory Booker profile ran, you know, just a couple days after the Johnstown piece. It's something that I had been working on for pieces of a couple months. It was always kind of the, you know, uh, the, the thing I also was working on. It never, it never sort of was the thing I was working mm-hmm. on, but I, you know, dropped in on him in, Raleigh, North Carolina, at a speech he was giving to the state uh, NAACP convention. I uh, met with him for uh, more than an hour in his office on the Hill, and I traveled to Newark and uh, rode around with him um, to a couple stops over the course of a, of a, of a day uh, in the back of his you know, black SUV. And so one of the challenges um, for me, uh, and hopefully I've been improving on this over the last several years at Politico, is to try to write with some sense of action and movement and scene uh, profiles of politicians when typically, not always, but typically the access you're getting and the time you're having with them um, is is somewhat stationary. You're sitting in a car, you're sitting in an office, or you're watching a speech, or something along those lines. And so you're looking for, you're looking not only to have um, exchanges that help you paint a picture of, of a person, a politician or otherwise, but you're looking for, um, you know, the smallest little um, pieces of life to um, make a profile um, of a politician not feel too sedentary mm-hmm. and too words based, and one of the specifically one of the challenges with Senator Booker is that he is so talkative and really has things to say, mm-hmm. and and is and is not saying them in a at least in a traditional way, kind of a soundbitey um, manner. Mm-hmm. He is um, he is he can be quite verbose um and that's good i would rather have that than (laughs) somebody who's who's just sort of uh spinning one-liners back at me but uh, introduced a different kind of challenge almost he's such a a wide-ranging and really in my opinion a, a deep thinker that um to sift through the you know the audio files generated um, with the what few hours of time I spent with him mm-hmm. in uh, a few different spots was just logistically and mechanically um, challenging. But, you know, again, to go back to what I think I said earlier on, it ultimately comes down to the same, the same set of skills, you know, mm-hmm. listening, identifying what is important, um, identifying themes, uh, making choices, um, and, and then pulling together in a, in a, in a draft that can be then 
you know, worked on and improved, improved to the point where, it, you know, as good as it's going to get um, uh, by the time it needs to, uh, it needs to publish. Right. Had you written about him before? I seem to remember you having a piece on him earlier in a magazine. Is that right or no? Am I did. I I, that was else? not my first. That was not my first experience with Cory Booker. I, I profiled him um, somewhat oddly for Men's Health that's magazine. What, yeah, that's he what was I the thought. Mayor of Newark, right? Um, and that profile was done, you know, very much for Men's Health. It mm-hmm. was, you know, a scene of him lifting weights in his apartment <laughs> and, uh, you know, telling me uh, why he was then a vegetarian, now he's a vegan, and and you know how he makes. <laughs> healthy choices for himself and how he was trying to improve the health of Newark. I mean, it was a very kind of men's health specific angle, but I did have some history uh, with him. Not that that, you know, helped me in any, in any, uh, in any real way um, uh, in my, in my time with him for Politico. Right. Well, Michael, uh, thanks for joining me. I I think I'm going to get to see you again for the first time in a long time. I think uh, in March, uh, we're going to have, uh, if anybody's listening who is going to go to AWP, which is a creative writing uh, program, uh, annual conference, it's a huge conference uh, that draws about 10,000 people, 10,000 writers a year. It's going to be in Tampa, and uh, somehow I managed to get a panel approved that, that's going to focus on the amazing writing uh, that the Tampa Bay Times inspires uh, and its journalists, and uh, Michael and Ben Montgomery and Lane DeGregory. And Leonora uh, LaPeter, and I'm going to pronounce her name incredibly wrong, um, uh, are going to be the four panelists on that. Did, did I say Leonora's name right? Yeah, Leonora LaPeter in time. Okay. Yes, I'm okay. looking forward to it uh, in, 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 in March down in the uh, the old stomping grounds in Tampa. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, good luck on everything you're working on uh, uh, from here on out, Michael. I look forward to whenever... Uh, uh, I see uh, the the links of your new stories dropping because they're almost always incredibly interesting. So uh, thanks a lot. All right. Thank you so much, Matt. I've been talking with Michael Cruz. Cruz is a senior staff writer at Politico. We've linked to several of Cruz's stories on our website. You can find that at gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Just go there and search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Gangry the Podcast is produced in Donnarumma Studios at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the College of Arts and Sciences and the Department of English at Fairfield U. Technical help, as always, is offered by John Scrata and Steve Cease. Noel Crouchley is a student assistant. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us.